Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to the Asia Tech Podcast. A few weeks ago, we did an episode with Crystal Chu, the executive director of Thrive Hour and the founder of Neo Sapio, and the response was so positive, we asked her to come back again and dig a little bit deeper into the psyche of startup founders. We should also note that Crystal is an expert in applied neuropsychology using a phenomenological approach to help senior leaders and teams achieve well-being and high performance. Crystal, thank you really for coming back on the show so soon. How are you doing? Yeah, I I was really blown away by uh, the feedback that we got from the previous podcast. It sounded like people really needed to hear some of the solutions that we spoke about yeah, and also so. just to to hear about these personal experiences that allow them to understand, you know, what what your experience is unique to you, but in general, it's not a unique experience. There's a lot of suffering and pain in in foundership, and we need to talk about it so that we can all go through this together because um, talking about it and feeling better is actually going to help performance, not hurt it. So if you're someone like me, very type A, and you're just all about you know doing well, doing better, right? What's, what's the term? Harder, uh, better, faster, stronger. <laughs> if that's like your basic mantra, then, then you know, um, maybe sometimes sinking into what you consider a more hippie thing like mental wellness isn't um, good for you. But then actually, scientifically, it's been proven that it helps your cognitive performance. So if you just kind of focus on that, then we can get right into it. Yeah. So on our last episode, right, we talked about this idea you have about the dangerous archetype of the startup founder. And oh, one of the yeah. things that we right, and one of the things that we talked about was loneliness and isolation. And I wanted to dig a little bit deeper into that topic because I felt like we could have expanded on it more. And that's oh, kind of what I, yeah. right, that's kind of what I want to do today. Let's start with this. Do you think that founders are generally those that are comfortable or more comfortable being alone than most other people? Or does does the founding of the company and the pressures that come of building that company isolate them? I think, you know, this really depends on the personality of the founder. And so every founder starts off as uh, with a different baseline. And of course, we have to understand what the purpose of the founder uh, is. Why did they start the company? Some of them really want to affect change. Some of them just have an idea. They can't get out of their heads and they need to work on it. And some of them have been working in an industry for a while. They see a gap and an opportunity uh, and they seize it. And some of them see um, the money and they're driven by that and they try to work around that. And all of these are perfectly good reasons to found a company. But then it attracts different types of people uh, who then, you know, uh, spiral with uh, down, down the hole with different problems <laughs> along the way. Um, but uh, I think founders in general are slightly more introverted if they want to uh, work on a product and they want to put a product out. And I think they are slightly more extroverted if they are doing it uh, in a way that gives them visibility. So right now, you know, founding, we have to address this, right? Founding, foundership is a very trendy thing right now. And so many people are jumping into it. And I think um, a lot of uh, of those people may be um, slightly different from when I started. Uh, When I started, we were all misfits. You know, we were all weirdos (laughs) trying to create little things. We're tinkerers, we're makers. Um, And now I think it's attracted a different type of person, which is not to say it's bad, but, but certainly I think it's moved a little bit from that introverted founder to you know all types 
And, and of course, we welcome all types because innovation is wonderful. Do you think there's a different kind of personality type? Just as an example, for a founder who's trying to fill a market gap and a founder who's just trying to make more money? Well, I think there are perhaps three different personality types, right? One may want to just fill a market gap, and, and that was me. Um, I saw uh, deep problems with uh, virtual connections, and, and we were losing a lot of um, our our social interaction. So right. um, I wanted to kind of build some technology that allowed us to mimic uh, the very positive interactions that we would have across a virtual landscape. And that was the, the gap. I don't know if it's a market gap or it's a human gap, um, but, but that was me. And then there are other founders that, yeah, just uh, I want to make a profit and that's great as well and maybe you're seeing some of the delivery services or some of the more like middleman type services that just help to increase the convenience um, of uh, what people do in a day and and sometimes it's both right you can only really make money if you are filling a gap for your target audience um, essentially so I think the, the different personalities come into play uh, later on, when they're under pressure, I think. <laughs> so you you you've just brought up a really interesting point for me, though, right? And I've heard people saying this a lot recently. With all of the social networks out there, it almost feels like we're less social than we used to be. And I don't think we've solved this problem of how to create sort of quality connections and connectivity, even though we may be connected to more people and have more access to people. And in the virtual world. You know, you can do video, but there's no haptics, there's no touch, there's no feel, right? You can't reach out when somebody needs something, kind of touch them on the hand or give them a hug. But do you think that there that, that also creates a feeling of isolation, maybe more than it would have before? Well, I can't really say exactly, but you've just touched on a huge uh, pet peeve of mine around virtual connection. And, um, you know, in my research, I was looking at natural language processing um, and some machine learning around how people can communicate more effectively. And by effectively, I don't just mean to get the meaning of someone else, but to get the feeling of someone else, to get the sense of someone else, uh, and also to create situations where uh, there is serendipity. So it feels like there is some spontaneity in the meeting, and so then there is some magic in that meeting. Um, And when I went down this rabbit hole, I also discovered how a lot of the nonverbal communication was being uh, lost in translation, lost in virtual translation. And I was thinking of how we could put some of this nonverbal stuff back in. And of course, certain senses are not being um, touched on. But for example, if someone pauses for a certain amount of time or their typing speed is maybe, let's say, 100 words a minute, and suddenly their typing speed went up to maybe 140 words a minute, we can almost assume that they're emotionally aroused. Now, how can the other person then, you know, detect this emotional arousal um, 
can can the app or can the platform actually send and say like oh you know this person's a little aroused right now and by aroused you know i mean they could be angry they could be excited they anything, could be yeah. And yeah anything that's just above baseline just more stimulated so i was looking at all these different ways that one could communicate using color right using haptics um that allow someone to feel what other people are feeling which yeah. you know typically our new our mirror neurons in our brain are able to translate for us uh, but of course uh, a lot of this is lost because you only have your forehead up to your collarbone to <laughs> <laughs> you can't even see me moving my hands typically you just see me shaking in my chair wondering what's going on right. so <laughs> let's bring this back a little bit to um yeah. founders there's a lot of research done on soul founders having two founders, what the impact that is on building the company. But I want to talk about that in this, in this context of isolation. What if, what are the dynamics of it if we're not in a sole founder situation? In other words, if there are two founders, but one of them feels isolated and the other one feels empowered, right? So there's an imbalance there. We already know that that founder-founder, co-founder relationship can be fraught with peril, right? Yeah. But if one of them kind of retreats and feels isolated, or if they both feel isolated from each other and from other things, what's the impact of that? I think the impact is that the company fails if the foundership um, is not addressed. That is the, the, you know, I think that's the end point. Because in a job, if you're feeling isolated, if you're feeling lonely and, and unsupported and disempowered right. in a typical job, regardless of whether you're junior or senior leader, um, you can almost expect that this person will either be let go or will quit from that job. And being a founder, I think, is no different. It just looks a little different on the outside. Now, I think the dynamics of both founders are really important. Can do they have a supportive relationship? Can do they have a shared vocabulary where one person can say, "I'm not feeling so well," and the other person can pick up on that and say, "How can I best support you?" Um, and vice versa, so that there isn't a, a cemented role almost where you know I always have to carry the emotional burden, and this person always can you know like uh, burn out and just. Um, breakdown and you know you don't want that to be the transactional role you want it to be a reciprocal role um, but the effects on the company is is really difficult is really difficult um, imagine as an employee you're you're watching this tenuous relationship where you see somebody withdrawing people can tell no matter how good you think of an, uh, how good of an actor you think you are people can always tell it's in the most subtle nuances in your facial muscles that we're able to detect how someone feels and it's not just the content of what uh, you say like for example i've I've actually uh, run social experiments on this. I put in rubbish words when I talk to people just to see if they're listening. You know, <laughs> I'll just say, oh, something, something, lesbian, something, something, fish, right? Or clamshell. And, and they don't blink. Cause, and really? then I know, okay, yeah. <laughs> so you can say a lot of things and it just flies over people's head. But if I'm talking to them face to face and I change how I'm emoting, I can see that they are mirroring that emotion and really getting into what I'm saying, regardless of the content. So it's it's an interesting dynamic. And so, you know, extrapolating that to the isolation and empowerment of, of different founders, perhaps one can feed off the other, but this is a chronically imbalanced relationship if it's not a reciprocal one. 
So I taught a class, I think I told you this, in, at the end of 2019 at Chula Kong University. This was really interesting for me, actually. And we split the class, which was 80-something people, into 10 teams, I think it was. And we did it randomly. So while in the classroom, everybody sat with their friends. The kids were only like 19 years old, right? 18 and 19 years old. But they would normally sit with their friends, and I didn't want everybody working with their friends because I wanted them to understand the dynamics of team forming, team leadership, and stuff like that. Yeah. And one of the young ladies who was in charge of, well, who was part of this one team came over to me and said, I don't want to be on this team. And mm-hmm. I, said, I said, why? And she said, because when I look around at the other team members, I know I'm going to have to carry everybody. And I said to her, so she already felt that. You go, girl. Right, you so I, know. <laughs> but I said to her, but I, I remember saying to her back then, I said to her, have, haven't you been doing this your whole life? And if you have, you're probably going to end up doing it for the rest of your life as well. And you might, might as well just get used to it. If you're going to have to carry this team, you're going to have to carry this team. But she felt isolated right from the start. Yeah. Even as a 19 year I thought that was just fascinating mm-hmm. for me. Wow. How interesting. She sounds like she's so emotionally aware. Very um, and and this is uh, amazing to hear. And you know, I can't help but think that some someone like that would be extremely empowered if they were taught how to uh, facilitate other people carrying their own emotional weight or helping each other, almost in a peer coaching kind of way, so that she doesn't feel the um, responsibility of doing that just because she knows how to better than other people. Yeah. What are some of the signals, though? We talked about this a little bit, but what are the, some of the other signals you think that founders give off when they start to feel isolated? Because at the beginning, maybe they don't. Maybe they feel super powerful. Maybe they feel super in charge. But I'm guessing as things get harder and as more pressure comes down on them, they withdraw a little bit. But how can you tell if you're not with them all the time what those signals are, even if you are with them all the time? Let's look at a typical founder, Okay. right? So this typical founder probably has friends from school who are not founders. So they're people that, you know, they care about, who cares about them, but don't know what they're going through. And then they have this new community of founders and investors. And everyone's trying to, you know, one-up each other. Everyone's just trying to show, put on a good face, uh, show that they're doing well so that the signals that they're sending out in that community is one that's positive and, and does well for the business. And the third, um, more invisible thing is this founder may not look socially isolated at all because they're always having meetings, right? They're meeting tons of new people and all that. So there are tons of social interactions. But then how many of these interactions are serendipitous um, and allow us to sink into ourselves and have a meaningful conversation? I think a lot of these meetings are feeling out what the transactional nature can be. How can this person add value to my team as a team member uh, or as an investor? Or it's threat assessment. How threatening is this person? Is this company? Is the inf- you know? And then you're always trying to assess how much information should I share, uh, and how much, and what should I ask, and how should I position myself, uh, and who are their networks, and what are they going to say about me to their networks? And so there's a lot of um, these you know silent and rapid mental calculations in the founder's mind. And in none of this do I see an opportunity for a meaningful connection, especially if the founder does not set out to do that right from the start. Right. So 
that's now your kind of uh, uh, behavioral phenotype, right, <laughs> of a founder in the wild. Now, back to your question, what signals to find? So in the start, yeah, I think they could be very excited about their product and, and you know, that's natural and, and amazing. But pressures, uh, fires, um, all of these things come uh, inevitably. And when you have to deal with these problems, who do you turn to? Assuming these founders don't have therapists, because like in our last podcast, we said 72% have mental health issues and right. very few of that percentage actually seek help. So assuming they don't have a therapist to talk to, a third person that they're not concerned uh, with but are able to have that meaningful conversation. Here are some signals I think founders send out. Go ahead. It's not scientific, but I think uh, um, just anecdotally I've seen this. I think founders talk through the articles that they post. So if they f they're feeling psychological burden, they may post that, you know, that old uh, Atlantic article about the psychological burden of founders. If they're feeling lonely, they may post something about, oh, social connection is great um, uh, for founders. So actually, if you're able to read between the lines and see what a founder has posted in, say, the last month or two months, you start seeing that they talk through these articles because this way they don't need to openly say, right. I'm suffering. Right. And it may seem like good news, you know, uh, sometimes like perhaps, okay, sorry. Um, a second thing that they may post outside of these articles is very good news. Oh, I'm crushing it. I'm doing this thing. I'm doing that thing. But if let's say they used to post this maybe once a month, like if they got featured in a paper and now they're posting um, small wins or any kind of thing that would potentially get them some social validation every other day, I can guarantee you this founder is feeling extremely lonely. They're posting what seems like good news and they're posting on social media um, with a lot of these little wins, but it's an effort to seek validation. And I think these founders mistake validation, right? A, a heart, a like uh, for actual social interaction. And so when I start seeing people posting a lot on social media, even if it's funny stuff or wins, I reach out to them and I say, hey. Are you okay? No, I, I don't say, are you okay? Because, you know, words matter. Yeah, go ahead. And, and so I don't say, are you okay? I say, hey, how are you feeling? Right. And I just give them that open space. And of course, I'll, I'll get the same comment. You know, I'm like, oh, I'm good, crushing it, doing really well. And I said, um, you know, you've done so much. You've been working on this for two years. It must be stressful. I understand the pressure. Right. Um, how are you affected by that? Yeah. And slowly, they just break down. And founders that talk to me always end up crying. Um, and, you know, it's just, and it's not because I'm saying something that hurts them, but it's just about giving them the space to, to let that out. Right. Um, and sometimes they resent me for it and they don't talk to me for a year. Uh, because it hurts their ego sometimes. But then a year later, I'll get a message. You know what? What you said to me back in 2000 or whatever, that really helped me. Thank you. And I'm like, okay, cool. <laughs> I'm just <laughs> glad you're alive <laughs> and, and doing well. So I think some of the signals are a change in posting habits. And then you can kind of read between the lines of what are, what are they seeking. Yeah. What do you think? So are you the kind of person, actually, I want to phrase this the right way. I'm the kind of person that if I don't get contact from somebody for a year, somebody that I like and someone that I respect, I'm not bothered. 
Yeah. And if they contact me like that year later and just say, how are you doing? Or just want to reach out to me. I behave almost like we just spoke yesterday. Oh, there's yeah. yeah. No, a, I'm the right? There's almost always an apology. Like, I'm sorry I haven't. And I'm like, why are you sorry? Like, you have a life. It's okay. Life gets in the way of a whole bunch of things. And sometimes I feel like it's because they are having some kind of issue that they just don't know how to resolve. resolve. And that when yeah. they finally come out of it or feel a little bit better, that's when they reach out. And I think that happens with this isolation problem as well. Yeah. I think it's two things. I absolutely agree with you. That is when they reach out. And I think the second thing is sometimes when they don't feel better, but yeah. they have intuitive sense that you're able to listen or they don't even know what they need, but they just know you might be the person, then they reach out too. Yeah, and that's fair. also happened to me a lot. Fair enough. They'll ask me how I'm doing, but I know <laughs> the question is, please ask me how I'm doing. Yeah, please ask me how I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> so how does I, this feeling of isolation, you think, impact performance sort of inside a company? And then I'm really curious, because we're still sitting in this self-quarantining situation, right, of COVID-19. And do you think this is exacerbating those feelings and the impact on performance? Wow. I am not looking forward to the avalanche of um, mental health issues that will arise from this, uh, but let's keep it focused on performance. So let me just share a little bit about what isolation does, right? It's not just a, it's not just a nice thing to have to be around friends. Isolation is a huge disease burden um, on, on, the mental, on, the, on the health industry. You know, in 2015, there was a, a meta-analysis done. A lack of social connection actually heightens health risks as much as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Wow. Um, yeah, uh, a, a huge study. I think it was 2013, if I'm not wrong. It had 580,000 adults. So that's a massive study. Um, wow. And across this study, they found that social isolation increased the risk of premature death from every cause for every race. And if we look at, you know, for founders, right, um, let's say we're talking about socially isolated men because t more men are founders than women these days, um, even though the women uh, are stepping up a little bit more. Um, well, socially isolated men, and, and by this we, we say they're not married, they have fewer than six friends, no memberships in organizations. They had a 90% increased risk of cardiovascular death and more than, than double of that uh, risk of death from accident or suicide. Wow. So isolation is a real problem. It actually leads to like um, premature death, you know, diabetes, things like that. And, and even the World Health Organization states that um, health is a, a state of well-being for physical, mental, and social well-being, not just the absence of disease, right? So, so what is social well-being here? It impairs performance, uh, when you're isolated because you can become depressed, things change in the brain. You can get poor sleep quality. Your executive function, which is your ability to choose what to focus and attend to, is impaired. You have accelerated cognitive decline and, of course, uh, impaired immunity and, and other more physical health issues at every stage of life. So we're not even talking about older people. We're talking about every stage of life. And a, and a very interesting thing here is, is to the brain, social pain feels uh, almost exactly like physical pain. Social pain signals that we're alone, you know, 
vulnerable and and it pain drives behavior and the behavior it drives us to is to form new connections or to rekindle old ones so if you look at performance in this way I fully, fully empathize with the founder that wants to perform. I used to biohack. I used to take drugs. I used to take like modafinil, for example, to increase. Yeah, it's a drug that is um, given to narcoleptics. And I took that so that I could perform 18-hour days every day, nonstop for four years. And, you know, I would biohack my way through this. And some of the side effects of these things are I get very impatient with people. Um, when someone's interrupting, everything's an interruption because the only thing I need to complete is my job today. And that never ends. And now what we see is if I kind of look back, I isolated myself from my friends. Right. I didn't attend the birthdays of my family members. I hung up on people that I just didn't think were valuable to me. I burnt relationships that I regret. And all of this is really, really heartbreaking. And at the end of it, when I was feeling the most alone, I had no idea who to call. Yeah. I called my earliest investor and I said, I don't know what I'm feeling and I don't know what to do. And he just knew what to say to me to get me out of a bad spot. And I went home and I cried to my mom and she didn't ask why and I didn't tell her why. But those were things I needed and, and I think that's too far. I think that's going too far. And I hope that founders um, today don't do that. Like I hope that you reach out. But you know, today I, I hope that I can share some things that uh, will help to empower you, to help you feel more connected um, and to help other people who may not be founders, help your founder friends uh, as well to, to feel better because, you know, all of this that we're talking about is really, is really depressing <laughs> when you think about it. And, and as I'm recounting this situation, I didn't realize this, but I, I feel quite emotional. I can feel you know? it. Yeah, I, I didn't realize it. I still had some of that, but I, yeah, I, I hold a lot of regret uh, with how I treated people um, during uh, some of my worst years of entrepreneurship, most successful and also the worst years. <laughs> so what kind of, what would you tell people who are going through this? And I think it's really two-sided, right? In other words, we talked a little bit about what those signals are. So if you're not going through this yourself, but you see somebody who's signaling this to you, what should you do? And on the flip side, if you are the founder and you start feeling yourself getting isolated, or you start seeing the signals in yourself, what are some of the concrete things that you can or should do to mitigate that. It's hard, I think. Sometimes you may not notice. Sometimes you may be so deep inside that maelstrom that you don't notice yourself. Exactly. You do, but if you do figure it out, if you are self-aware, and we talked a little bit about self-awareness earlier. Yeah. If you're self-aware enough, what should you do? As a founder, the first thing you need to do is you need to have a small plan for when you don't feel good. And the way to be self-aware the very simple way to be self-aware is what I call the traffic light system. So 
there's the green, the amber, the red, and the black, okay? So in green, just write down all the things you feel that are good, how you behave. So let's say you're in green, you're feeling really good. What are the things you do? You tend to go for runs, you tend to call friends up for no reason, you go for coffees once a week. These are the things that signal to you that you're in green. And you do the same for, for amber. And amber is when you know, you, you're not so green, but you're not really feeling too bad right? Uh, and red is when you're feeling very bad. You start isolating yourself. You start uh, not answering phone calls. You start um, being very sluggish at work. You're not sleeping well. And black is when, let's say you call someone, you can't even talk. Right. You, don't, you can't, the words don't form. You're, you're in a complete freeze situation. Your body has frozen up in a full uh, threat um, or, or surrender situation. And so, if you kind of list down how you feel in each one, you'll you'll immediately and very quickly be able to see, oh, where am I? And then the second part of this traffic light list is what can I do to get to the, the light ahead, right. right? So if I'm amber, what can I do to feel more green? So maybe for an introvert like myself, if I go into amber and I look at my calendar, chances are in the last two weeks, I've had too many meetings. <laughs> So I know, okay, I'm in Ember. I'm going to cut down on meetings, right? Just the most essential. And I'm going to take some space for myself. And then I get back to green. Um, and if I'm on red, maybe I need to talk to a friend for an hour about something very deep. Or I need to um, go somewhere and heal. So there are actions that you can take for yourself to bring yourself just one level up. And that's, I think very important as a first step because it's not easy to be self-aware in the present moment all the time, right? Everyone struggles with that. But it is easy to just quickly ask, what color am I? Yeah, I love this. I, I wanna I wanna make an equivalency here, right? Yeah. Back in the mid eighties to mid nineties in the United States, and you'll see where this is going in a second, some of the sports leagues like the National Basketball Association and the National Football Association when the guys started, when the TV contracts started getting really large and the guys started making a ton of money, particularly at a really young age, they mismanaged yeah. that money, they overspent it, they, yeah. had their, they had their friends from high school who came in and wanted fancy cars and fancy clothes and they would just waste all this money and they'd work for five years, they'd make 15 million bucks and end up with nothing. And what, and what mm -hmm. th these leagues started doing was, as they came into the league, they would start having classes, not just on how to block and tackle, not just on how to shoot and play defense, but on how to manage your money and also how to handle those personal relationships where people are going to ask you for a ton of things. And I wonder if accelerators, right, like mm. Y Combinator and some of these other places that teach growth hacking, that teach all these things on how to build a company should also have some sort of thing where they teach you about this green, amber, red, and black, where... Before you get into it, before you start feeling isolated, before you start having those mental health issues that are associated with building a company from zero, which is different than having a high-powered job at Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley, but maybe they should teach some of this too. Do you know what I mean? So that, so that when you come out of it, you, you know how that feels. Sorry, go ahead. I fully agree with you. And it's not just founders, but it's also corporations, right? Yeah, yeah. My, my partner, Leanne Robers, and I from Neosapio, where we uh, work on transformative solutions using psychology and neuroscience, we actually did approach um, many accelerators and VCs. And the unified response was, there's so many free resources out there. Why should we invest in this program? I'm calling BS. Sorry. So. 
but go ahead. So, well, I can see why, because um, they don't really allocate budget for this, do they? I mean, the the VCs and the accelerators are not set up for this type of success, right? And it's so immeasurable how someone feels to to someone who says, uh, uh, who we think is just managing money, for example. So I agree that these classes, right, these resources should be made available to founders and especially founders because this is an inhuman job, right? And so we do need some of these extra superpowers and tools to be able to cope and, and live through it. So I do think it's the responsibility of the founder to ensure that they understand themselves but I also think that society needs to step up. And if, a, if an accelerator wants to empower a founder, then they should look at it in a more holistic way where empowerment is not just money or contacts uh, and connections, but also help uh, with the founder. And, and this actually does help performance. It helps them communicate better. It helps them lead better. So um, these are things that have, you know, rippling benefits that are, are great. But currently, I can say, at least in Asia, it's not something that the accelerators and VCs think are particularly important. But if they are managing the money and if their idea is that they want to take that money and get a 4x or 5x return, and if the founder want to build, wants to build something that's transformational, and as we discussed earlier, if your mental health is as important to your success as your ability to growth hack, and if your isolation makes you withdraw right, yeah, and, not be, and, not, and not be able to focus on things, why is it any different? You used the word hippie before, and I was going to push back on it a little bit. It's not your view, but it's, yeah. it's not your view, but it's other people's view that why am I dealing with this hippie stuff, right? Like, it's not like that. And we talked about this earlier, too. If 72% of founders have some type of mental health concern or problem, how is that different than having an accounting problem or a growth hacking problem? In other words, if accelerators are teaching you how to build from scratch and blitz scale and do all this other stuff, if one of the main things that's stopping you from that success is your state of mental health, it's very short-sighted not to at least teach founders that they're going to have these signals that tell them, like you said, I like this idea of the stoplight, right? If you're green, you're feeling great. Here's what you do when you're feeling great. It doesn't have to be like a seven-week course. It just has to be here are the signals that you'll know yourself about how you're feeling, and here are a few ways to mitigate them, and don't stop thinking about it when you're building. And frankly... Even NFL teams have psychologists on the team. They have team doctors. What's the difference? I don't think there is a huge difference, Neither but I. I think that, you know, let's go back to that behavioral phenotype of the founder. The founder wants to send out good signals so that they can get what they need for the business. And so I think the accelerators and VCs sometimes don't see the cracks Maybe. because the founders work very hard to hide them. You don't want to get your VC panicking. You don't want to get the people who invested in you lose faith in you. So there's a power dynamic that almost disallows authentic connection unless the VC steps forward right up front to say, look, this is the hard journey. Here's what you can uh, talk to me about and actually actively push for them to talk about it. And then my question is, are people who manage uh, money skilled at doing that <laughs> <laughs> the answer to that is no for the most part and they're maybe not thoughtful enough to, to figure that out but that's why they're experts in those fields in the same way that every venture capitalist no, and is if you can't do it idea. exactly 
you can you can always have a psychologist um, or a therapist or you know even a counselor uh, for your available to your startups that you know have an NDA and the startups feel safe reaching out. That's something that you certainly can do. But one one thing I would like to talk about here. Go ahead. That would be very helpful for both founders and the friends of founders mm-hmm. is what you what you can do to establish connections. So when people talk about isolation, I think the big thing here is not just isolation physically or even socially. It's disconnection when you are no longer connected either to yourself or to other people around you. And that's when all the neurodegeneration occurs. That's when all the behavioral um, problems occur. And that's where all the pain occurs as well. So how can we connect more meaningfully? How can we connect better uh, for friends of founders? Like, okay, so female founders experience different uh, challenges, right? And and I'm a big supporter of, of women in leadership. And sometimes if I see a friend doing very well um, and posting about that, I actually have written to them and I say like, I fully support you. You're doing an amazing job. I love how you wrote this or how you did this. You're making such a big impact. And I always get the same response. Thanks. I didn't know how much I needed that encouragement. <laughs> So if you have time, just reach out. You know, if you like the work of someone, just reach out and say, I love this. You're doing great. Thank you for, you know, sacrificing so much so the world has this. Make it a meaningful statement, right? And meaningful statements are not like, uh, like, oh, you're the boss. You're a star. Go get it. Like, it's not cheerleading statements. No, it's not it's at all. statements that come from the heart that's that really let them know how sincere you are and how you see them because connection is about feeling safe and being seen and to be seen you must use words that that they are thinking about themselves right and so here's what friends can do you can just reach out and encourage you can reach out and say hey it's not just how are you like in a you know a high buy kind of way but like no. how you, how are you doing? What what challenges have you faced in the last month, right? These are my opening statements. Sometimes I don't even start with hello, which is not, you know, it's been brought up to me. That's not very socially acceptable. <laughs> but, but sometimes I message friends out of the blue. I say like, what's, um, what's a challenge you've been facing the last month and how can I support you? And they're like, where did this even come from? Are you okay? I'm like, I'm okay, right? Uh, but are you okay? And they're like, you know what? I'm Actually, <laughs> it always starts like that. <laughs> actually. <laughs> but I, I think this idea of having like efficient and effective connection is really important. And maybe I would say that we stop now and we leave that because I feel like there's another episode alone in just how particularly in this time of COVID and everything else, but also we talked a little bit earlier about social networks and how it changes the dynamics, whether it's the serendipitous connections you make with people or the serendipitous ideas you have with people. I want to leave with this one thought, and then maybe we come back and talk later about connectivity. If you're in a big office, right? So if you're sitting in the office at Goldman Sachs and you see two people having a conversation about something, you can always walk over because you see the conversation occurring and say, hey, can I just give you my thoughts on these two things? They can say yes or no. There's some real dynamics there. You can add in. But you and I are having what I consider to be a very interesting conversation, but there's simply no way for someone to serendipitously hear this right now. Even if we were going live to Facebook, it would still be hard for people to really participate because of 
like you said, that, that physical connectivity that we're missing. And I want to think about ways, I don't want to go into it now, but I want to think about ways to talk about how virtual, virtualness like changes your relationships and your interactions and your connectivity with people. Yeah, it certainly uh, creates a much larger burden on a person mm. to be able to communicate in an emotionally intelligent way and to have a much wider vocabulary because that is all the all those words need to make up for the nonverbal stuff that you're missing. Absolutely. Okay, let's leave it at that. I really appreciate your time again today. Let's just go back to this. Crystal Chu, the executive director of Thrive Hour and the founder of Neo Sapio. Awesome again. Really, thank you. Thank you.